Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another podcast. Today, I'm joined with Daryl Murphy, who's the head of infrastructure at Aviva Investors. Before Aviva, he graduated from the University of Exeter um, with a PhD in maths. He then went on to work at several different companies, um, such as SockGen, RBC, HSBC, and KPMG. Um, so, yeah, thank you very much for joining me today, Daryl. Um, do you mind if I just ask you a very general question? Um, what does your day-to-day kind of role entail uh, being head of infrastructure? Max, thanks, and thanks for having me. Um, day-to-day, my, I would describe my role as I look after infrastructure, debt, and equity at Viva Investors. Um, in effect, that, uh, that involves the origination, i.e. finding of transactions, executing those deals, and importantly, managing those assets, typically for internal and external clients. Um, these are all infrastructure assets. Um, so, you know, I, I, I've had a long, a long career, I guess, in infrastructure, but now we're very much looking for the right investments and looking after those assets. To give you some sort of dimension, the portfolio size is probably around getting on for nine billion sterling in debt assets and around two billion in equity. So, so it keeps me pretty busy. Wow, um, that's that's huge actually. What are the uh, what are the benefits of infrastructure as an asset class for investors? Um, a lot of our investors are, as I say, either insurance uh, companies who are actually investing. Uh, annuity funds or pension funds and those investors typically particularly in today's macroeconomic environment are looking for long-term stable investments you know which they can achieve from long-term stable cash flows Um, and in many cases they're looking to match long-term liabilities and infrastructure on that basis suits their needs because typically infrastructure has been as involved long-term um, robust cash flow driven investments with a with a with a good risk and return so a lot of our clients are really looking at infrastructure as that long-term stable um, uh, asset class mm. do you see any um, infrastructure asset classes on the rise and what are the future prospects for them such as uh, data well, this is the exciting thing around the involvement of uh, being an in infrastructure at the moment. Um, the development of the asset class has changed even over the course of my, my career, I guess. Um, you know, we've gone through different phases, which involved everything from, if you go far enough back, um, the development of uh, gas power stations. If you go back to the 80s, um, in the 90s, in the 2000s, we saw government invest a lot in social infrastructure through public-private partnerships, PFI. Um, And in the 2000s, we started to see a large growth in renewable energy, which has been a uh, a great uh, development in terms of ability to look at, uh, again, long-term infrastructure assets with a very strong um, environmental background. And if we look at where we stand today, it's not necessarily a step change, but we see we do see a change in infrastructure which relates to the, the, really where society is. And if you think probably the two greatest drivers around this is, um, and the two hottest topics is firstly, as you indicate, data, so digital infrastructure, 
which would mean um, historically would have meant masts, as it were. Uh, that's now developing into broadband, but really fibre to the home, which is a very high priority for government. So you know we're seeing a lot of activity both in the UK and Europe in this area. Data centres, again, a very fast-growing market. And the other larger theme, um, which we can get into, is the uh, transition, the, the, the energy transition to a low-carbon economy, and in UK terms, what the impact of net zero means. Mm. So I, I suppose um, you know, net zero is now a huge focus uh, for infrastructure lending. But um, how does sustainability and renewability intertwine into the lending criteria? Yes, so the way uh, you may be familiar with the, the phraseology is becoming a little bit more um, widely used as a term outside of uh, just purely institutional investors is the concept of ESG, so environmental, social and governance. And this is the means by which we assess um, long-term sustainability of our assets. The environmental part, I guess, is fairly common sense, but that increasingly is around use of carbon and the impact of that asset on the economy. Uh, but increasingly, the social and governance aspects are also very important, i.e. if you take fibre, broadband, the impact to uh, communities, particularly in, you know, in, in sort of community broadband schemes, is, uh, is very important. So that improves you know, social, uh, social values. And, and governance is a, you can say, a probably hygiene factor, but very important in terms of how um, assets are managed for, for the greater good. So, so the ESG is a uh, very important part of our process. If we are making investments, we would not just look at the credit analysis, but really ESG, both in terms of um, it can be a risk. So, for example, if you think about um, if you owned a gas, uh, power station, for example, you might start to think of ESG as a risk, i.e. do you have the risk of a stranded asset in the future, uh, depending on you know, government policy, for example, but more importantly, ESG impact. So increasingly, we're looking for projects that will make a positive impact, particularly in areas such as energy transition. So this, this, uh, this feature in terms of how we assess investments in ESG terms is absolutely embedded into uh, our day-to-day -day life. So it's not just credit analysis. It increasingly means looking at things through, those, through that ESG lens. So how, so how does the tango between private and public infrastructure spending actually work? So I would, uh, yes, this is a fair point. So I think it comes back to the idea of, um, you know, from a government, what it's trying to achieve. I think, you know, it starts from the government saying, look, it has a, I mean, increasingly it's worked hard at developing a, long-term strategy for infrastructure investment. Um, you know, it has the National Infrastructure Commission who published the, the National Infrastructure uh, Assessment, um, which sets out a long-term strategy. The, the government of the day will have a shorter term, you know, obviously the course of that parliament dictate what delivery of infrastructure is needed. The fundamental choice it comes down to is what, what it chooses to publicly fund or use private capital on. And, uh, and I think as I discussed before, that tends to be a policy decision. It tends to be influenced by um, uh, value for money considerations from the Treasury perspective. 
And I think the, the, current, the current government would say, look, you know, we, we can't simply, I mean, the UK doesn't have the mantra of saying we are going to publicly fund all infrastructure. Um, but increasingly, it's drawing a line between what it would call tax-funded infrastructure, i.e. Um, transport is a good example, which is, you know, the, the, the government and certainly social infrastructure in terms of schools and hospitals, for example, where the government's saying that this, we're going to use tax funds actually the most efficient way um, to, to really finance those assets is to borrow more. Um, mm. That comes down to the economic debate around, you know, what, what level of public spending can the government achieve. But equally, you know, um, depending on the, the numbers might change, but not so long ago, the, the general number thrown out by government has been something like 600 billion infrastructure investment over the next 10 years. So that's around 60 billion a year. And um, if you look across all sectors, half of that should really come from the private sector. And that is, that is predominantly in um, power and utilities and digital, as I, as I note. So I think going forward, what we're going to see is probably less opportunities for the likes of us in, in uh, transport to some degree and social infrastructure, but a big demand in energy and, uh, and digital. And I, I use Sorry, I say use the example of HS2, for example, you know, it's a very large project, but reality is the government, as it's indicated, will be um, borrowing in effect to, to fund that scheme. So it's unlikely to have any private capital in it, at least till such a time in which it's uh, operational. Okay. Um, so why, why is private infrastructure not central to government policy in 2020 uh, as it was in 2010? I think, I think that's really a, a change in sentiment. So as you rightly point out, if we go back 10 years, um, at the time, we were just coming out of the financial crisis. Uh, austerity was biting at a government level. I think relative to today, the concept of saying, let's increase public borrowing was not uh, high on the agenda. And uh, at that time, there was a lot of effort to try and encourage greater investment from institutional investors, such as ourselves. So insurers, pension funds were being heavily courted by the government on the basis of saying, look, we're in a fiscally difficult position, we need infrastructure, uh, private capital has to play a role. I would argue that that institutional capital flowed naturally into those uh, sectors over time, but there has been this slight shift in public uh, policy, public opinion and, and policy from government uh, which has been a questioning in some areas around what is the value that private capital brings to public uh, infrastructure. The best example for the person on the street would be their views of you know, the service they get from water companies, uh, train operating companies, and in a, in a watershed moment uh, for those in the industry, in any case, would have been the liquidation, ultimately, of Carillion and the failure of Carillion across a number of public infrastructure projects. And it really brought to a head this idea of um, a delicate balance between public good and, um, and capital, uh, capital profit, as it were. Um, I do think that's an area that everyone needs to, um, to recognize, and I think you certainly see this in utilities. They're recognizing that we have to improve the public perception of the role of private capital in public infrastructure. What were the largest 
infrastructure deals over the past decade and why. So what was the uh, demand for them, um, such as you know renewables and social infrastructure? Yes, I think um, if I cast my mind back to sort of 2010, um, the reality is uh, for the sort of 10 years preceding that, a lot of the UK market in particular was dominated by public-private partnerships, PFI. Um, you know, we were large deals in those days used to be, you know, sort of a billion pound or so hospital, for example, under PFI. Um, the area that's interesting, we look over the last 10 years, has been the um, successful and extraordinary growth of renewables. And obviously onshore wind and solar grew. But interestingly, in 2010, the concern was, you know, raising a billion or so capital was quite challenging post-crisis. If we fast forward to today, um, we are seeing regularly very large financings, i.e. of the order two to three billion, raised against uh, new build offshore wind farms. So offshore wind, offshore wind has really dominated uh, that market over that period of time, and it's been, you know, arguably a great success story for the UK. Um, so that, that that's really been the uh, and the need for obviously renewables is is well documented, um, and obviously the government is very clear in saying it's going to it's supportive of seeing more of that. So the the offshore wind industry has been a been a big winner. So on the other end of the spectrum, um, why were infrastructure deals uh, in the spaces of tidal and carbon capture such large failures? Um, yeah, I think. I think the simple answer is one of, uh, at the time, cost. Um, you know, I think, to be fair, we have to look at offshore wind and say it took a long time to develop a, a, an asset class where costs reduced such that um, the level of uh, subsidy, should we say, that was provided to offshore wind um, steadily reduced over time. And the last auction uh, the government ran, um, you were seeing pricing, which was effectively close to where the wholesale market is. If we look at Tidal, good example, the Swansea Tidal Lagoon, um, you know, a, a very interesting project from an engineering perspective, um, didn't proceed. Uh, in theory, you're using natural resources available, particularly in the UK, um, but the challenge really was, was there value for money in terms of the, the cost of that power? I think the developers would argue that you know, the first of a kind is always going to be quite expensive. The, the argument was, could you reduce that cost over, over time? But the government view was, um, was kind of negative on that, and that, that project uh, frittered away. Carbon capture is very in interesting because at around the same time, there was um, a lot of money being spent by the private sector and government to try and support the idea of carbon capture and storage. Um, and that sort of hit a moment when it felt like the view was that that no longer was going to be part of the energy mix, probably, again, due to cost. Over the last year or so, carbon capture and storage has really returned with a vengeance. So at the moment, it would seem that um, there's renewed, very renewed interest by government and the private sector. And, and obviously, the benefit of carbon capture and storage is, you know, in the day, this is a means by which you can decarbonize, in theory, existing or new um, uh, gas plants, for example. So, so actually, you know, as part of an energy mix, um, it's been recognised that that might play a big part both in the UK and overseas. But the but the fundamental issue for government is back to cost, and that's a cost the consumer has to bear. So 
it's a delicate balance, I guess, between supporting new clean energy and the ultimate cost to the consumer. Mm. Um, okay. Which asset class do you think will experience the most growth over the next uh, decade until 20, uh, 2030? I think, um, I think I'd have to say, in terms of that level of definition, energy, simply due to the impact of um, net zero. If you think about even energy generation, and if you to look at your you know sort of various um, uh, websites or, or sort of uh, apps out there at the moment, you know we're still quite dependent on gas. Um, we've, we've got a fair way to go yet in order to reach net zero from a generation side. The decarbonisation of heat is going to be immense. It's something that the government's going to say more on quite soon. But you know we're a long way from a world where you know, people move away from having gas boilers in their, in their homes. So I think the sheer scale of uh, net, zero, net zero from a practical point of view to the general public means that there'll be a lot of opportunity in the energy sector. Um, the, the area that's fast changing, as I say, is, is obviously data, uh, which again, is not gonna go backwards. You know, we're gonna use more and more data. We're going to see uh, the growth of, you know, the internet of things, potentially the growth of autonomous vehicles, all of that type of technology is going to need more and more data. That's going to need more fiber. It's going to need more data centers. So, you know, I put those two, but I think the sheer scale and from sheer investment value, energy would be my uh, my bet for the future, as it were. Um, and I think the last question to end off on is, um, what's the relationship between the construction industry and infrastructure? It's a very important point because if I, uh, if I step aside from a financing point of view, um, when we discuss whether infrastructure should be publicly financed or privately financed, irrespective of that, the infrastructure still needs to be built. So the financing is kind of separate. And I think one of the things that uh, certainly I would observe is when the government talks around spending more on infrastructure, it needs a supply chain that can deliver. So, so the infrastructure requirement uh, of, of government going forward um, will be uh, ambivalent to the financing route. Um, the government cannot deliver the infrastructure itself. It needs the construction industry to build new roads, rail, take HS2 as an example, whether it be you know, new energy, um, energy sources, et cetera. So actually, um, the financing is kind of separate to that. We need that supply chain. That supply chain needs labor. So I think certainly, you know, stepping aside from financing, it's extremely important that the government makes sure that the industry can deliver. In theory, this should be positive for the construction industry. But you'll be aware they've had a pretty tough time over, over the last sort of um, number of years. And hopefully they'll be looking for what they need is probably a steady, predictable pipeline such that they can actually invest in people, in apprenticeships, uh, in technology to actually deliver the quality of infrastructure that we, uh, we deserve.